It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, artist Jeff Koons' next sculpture installation, On the Moon. Plus, it's not just you. Seasonal allergies really are worse this year. And the climate emergency is to blame. And the northern lights might be visible Wednesday night in parts of the northern U.S. and Canada, with bonus rockets being blasted into them by NASA. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. So last night I was scrolling through Reddit and saw a video of Captain Chris Hadfield during his tenure at NASA's Aquarius Underwater Lab demonstrating what happens when you try to open a can of soda at the bottom of the ocean. This led to people, of course, sharing Hadfield's incredible 2013 music video of David Bowie's space oddity that he filmed on board the International Space Station. And incredibly, there were some people in the thread who had never heard of the video, which I guess is actually understandable especially if you were like eight years old in 2013. It was kind of a while ago at this point. And it was kind of a beautiful moment, you know, watching people experience the music video for the first time. And given that it was such an unprecedented, awe-inspiring video, the newbies had a lot of questions. And being that it's Reddit, there were a couple of jokers who said that Chris Hadfield was just a really talented guitarist who so badly wanted to make a music video in space for this particular song that he spent years training as a pilot and astronaut just so he could one day film the song in space. Which is, of course, not true, but if it were true, if Captain Chris Hadfield had simply been a musician with a dream to make a music video in space, rather than spending a lifetime training for a career as an astronaut, he simply could have waited a few more years for private space tourism to really start kicking off. Because now we send all kinds of people who aren't trained as astronauts up into space. And whether it's the artists themselves getting a trip into space or not, art in general is increasingly being included as an element of spaceflight and exploration, in part to bolster sustained public interest. And the latest venture? American artist Jeff Koons will be sending some small original sculptures to the moon on board the Nova Sea Lunar Lander. Now, you may know Jeff Koons best for his stainless steel sculptures that look like giant balloon animals. He tends to focus most on reflective objects, also being well-known for huge hearts and some dolphins. No word just yet on what shape his moon sculptures will take. His rep at Pace Gallery says it'll be announced in the coming weeks, but we do know that they are part of his newest project called Jeff Koons' Moon Phases, which, in addition to sending sculptures to the moon, will also include NFT because, of course. Per Artnet, quote, The 67-year-old artist will present his first-ever NFT collection with Pace Verso, the gallery's Web3 platform, of artwork inspired by the technological advancements of humans and their endless fascination with the moon. Each unique digital work from the Moon Phases series will correspond to a physical sculpture. Later this year, a group of these sculptures will be launched into space from Pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Station in Cape Canaveral, Florida, to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the United States' last crewed trip to the moon on Apollo 17. The project aims to do some terrestrial good, too. A limited number of NFTs will be sold through Pace, and proceeds from some of the first sales will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. End quote. 
So the Nova Sea lander that will carry the art to the moon is being built by Intuitive Machines, one of three private companies NASA awarded contracts to to develop lunar landers. And these differ from the lunar lander SpaceX was picked to develop that will actually ferry astronauts to the moon, and which NASA recently announced their opening applications for a second company to develop an additional lander for astronauts. But Intuitive Machines, along with Astrobotic and Orbit Beyond, were picked to develop robotic lunar landers that will carry NASA payloads and commercial cargo as they investigate and test run the best methods of landing on the moon ahead of the highly anticipated astronaut landing. Kunz's sculptures will be encased in a 6-inch cubic box that's transparent and thermally coated, and Intuitive Machines says they'll be attaching a camera to the lander so that we can all see what the statues look like on the moon. Kunz's Moon Phases sculptures will not be the first art on the moon, though by some definitions they will be the first authorized pieces of artwork on the moon. Back in 1971, the crew of Apollo 15 quietly placed a small plaque and little aluminum sculpture of a robot-looking astronaut on the moon before departing. The sculpture was created by sculptor Paul Van Hedonk and called Fallen Astronauts. The plaque bore the names of all the astronauts and cosmonauts that had passed away since the space programs began. And it wasn't something many people knew happened for a while. It wasn't a public stunt at all. Commander David Scott recounted years later that all he said on comms was that he was cleaning up behind the rover while he placed the plaque and sculpture there. But his crewmate, Lunar Module Pilot James Irwin, knew exactly what he was doing. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, American sculptor Forrest Myers has claimed to have had a tile attached to the Apollo 12 spacecraft that was left on the moon by the crew. The three-quarter inch by half inch ceramic tile includes artwork by Andy Warhol, Klaus Oldenburg, David Navros, Robert Rauschenberg, and John Chamberlain. Each of them did a very small illustration. Rauschenberg just drew a line, while Warhol signed his initials, but in a way that makes them look like a very phallic rocket ship. Altogether, the ceramic tile is referred to as Moon Museum, and it's never been officially confirmed that the Moon Museum tile is indeed on the moon. After getting the runaround several times when going through official channels, Myers managed to get an engineer to find a safe place for the tile on the lander module, and while it's been confirmed that Apollo 12 astronauts did leave some personal effects on the moon, it's unknown if they removed the tile from the lander and left it there. Nonetheless, Myers claimed they did after getting confirmation that it was on the lander from the engineer, and the New York Times ran the story before the Apollo 12 crew even got back home, notably with a thumb obscuring Warhol's rude drawing on the photo of the tiny tile. But this time, we all know exactly what art will be installed on the moon, except Kunz's sculptures might not be the first to get there. The Verge notes that Astrobotic plans to send artwork by Dubai-based artist Sasha Jaffrey to the moon on their own lander later this year via United Launch Alliance's Vulcan rocket. So we'll see which comes first. But I guess in the kind of consolation prize Americans are used to with the space race, Coons could at least be the first American to have his authorized artwork on the moon. And here's what Coons himself had to say about his Moon Phases project, quote, 
I wanted to create a historically meaningful NFT project rooted in humanistic and philosophical thought. Our achievements in space represent the limitless potential of humanity. Space explorations have given us a perspective of our ability to transcend worldly constraints. These ideas are central to my NFT project, which can be understood as a continuation and celebration of humanity's aspirational accomplishments within and beyond our own planet. End quote. So last week, I spent some time in North Carolina, where, out on the coast at least, allergy season has fully begun, and dang, did it hit me hard. You know, at first, I was, of course, worried I'd picked up COVID somewhere, but a combination of a negative test and then the observation that everyone's cars were fully coated in yellow powder reassured me that my symptoms were indeed seasonal allergies. I'm actually still trying to recover from that bad bout of allergies right as they start to pick up here in New York, which you might have noticed from my slightly strained and nasally voice the last several days. But anyways, having to wash off your car and patio furniture and literally anything you ever take outside multiple times a day for several weeks each year might be standard operating procedure in some places, but experts are saying that allergy season in general has been getting steadily longer and more intense each year in the U.S., and we have the climate emergency to thank for it. The Washington Post reports that pollen season has lengthened 20 days over the past 30 years across North America, and concentrations of pollen have increased by 21%. And a more recent study indicates the situation could get even worse by the century's end. Pollen season may eventually start 40 days earlier and last 19 days longer, with levels tripling in some parts of the U.S., Referencing the recent study and insight from co-author Allison Steiner, an atmospheric scientist, the Washington Post explains, quote, Warmer temperatures can shift the growing season earlier and extend it longer, as well as help plants produce more pollen. Higher levels of carbon dioxide can also aid photosynthesis, so plants produce more pollen, although more research is needed to understand the future increase. And unlike previous studies, the team looked at different types of pollen across the country for future projections. Overall, every region is expected to see an increase in pollen production from grass in the summer by the end of the century. Pollen season will change more in the north than in the south because of larger increases in temperature. However, some regions will feel more pronounced effects than others because of the distribution of tree species, end quote. The research team looked at 15 different pollen-emitting species, and co-author Ying Zhao Zhang explained that a lot of those species' pollen emissions are starting to shift closer together, so there's a lot more overlap happening. And a lot of those shifts are coming from trees, who are already the worst offenders when it comes to pollen. Steiner explained, quote, Trees tend to really put out a lot of pollen, much more so than grasses and weeds. If we look at it on a per-grain perspective, they're one of the bigger emitters. They have a fair amount of surface area, and they can produce a lot of pollen in the spring. End quote. So watch out for overlapping oak and birch blooming in the northeast, earlier pollination of alder trees in the Pacific Northwest, and the most drastic increases from the oaks and cypresses in the southeast. The one possible point of good news here is that at least two studies have shown that we can cut the increase in severity of pollination in about half just by moving from a high emissions scenario in the climate emergency to a moderate emissions scenario. Now, of course, that's looking increasingly challenging these days, but it could happen. 
And in the meantime, Steiner is working with the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration to try to create a more robust pollen forecast model that we could all use to more accurately and conveniently plan out our days based on pollination levels. But until then, brace yourselves for a worse-than-usual allergy season this year. Well, I mentioned that the sun has been super active recently, and so far we haven't experienced any major interference from geomagnetic storms, but a massive solar flare on Monday now means that the northern lights might be visible to the naked eye in many places that rarely get to see them. The news was announced by the U.S.'s National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Space Weather Prediction Center, who predicted a peak in the geomagnetic storm at 6 on the KP index, which goes all the way up to 9. Usually anything above a 5 gets a warning issued by the SWPC. And that peak activity is slated for between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time this Wednesday, the 30th, into Thursday, the 31st. According to science writer Jamie Carter in Forbes and SpaceWeather.com, auroras should be visible without the need for a telescope all the way down to geomagnetic latitude 55 degrees. So that means the northern reaches of Idaho, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, New Hampshire, New York, North Dakota, Washington, Wisconsin, and Vermont may all have aurora borealis lighting up their skies this Wednesday night. Auroras are always a bit tough to see. You'll want to get away from light pollution as much as possible and look towards the dark northern horizon. It also helps to give yourself about a half hour away from any lights, so like no phone or anything like that, so that your eyes can completely adjust to the dark and are better trained to see the very light green dancing haze low in the sky. And if you miss it this time, Carter writes, quote, It could be followed up by more auroras because the sunspot that hurled the coronal mass ejection, or CME, towards Earth has since exploded a whopping 17 times. As a result, at least two more CMEs are headed towards Earth and could cause auroras on April 1st. End quote. And during this period of high activity, NASA is planning to launch two rockets straight into the northern lights, perhaps trying to harness the power of dust to tear a hole into a parallel universe like Lord Asriel in the Golden Compass. Or they're just measuring the wind, temperatures, and density of plasma in the aurora, which is what lead astronomer Stephen Kepler is telling the press. Quoting Space.com, Kepler and his team are interested in the boundary between neutral gases in the atmosphere and plasma, or charged gas that becomes increasingly prevalent in the upper atmosphere. The molecular disturbance of the aurora perturbs the boundary layer between lower atmosphere neutral gases and higher atmosphere plasma. The disturbance leads to friction and therefore heat that researchers can measure. The results should reveal the details of how the aurora alters that boundary layer between neutral gas and plasma, Kepler said in the statement, the boundary might get higher, drop lower, or fold and change shape, end quote. So far, the rockets have still yet to launch due to bad weather conditions at the launch site near Fairbanks, Alaska, but the launch window is open until April 1st with another window, the 3rd through the 7th. Though you probably won't see a rocket shooting through the aurora, you can still try to catch sight of Aurora Borealis if you live along that 55 degree latitude mark or further north. 
And I will also take this moment to recommend my favorite song that I ever discovered on MySpace, The Northern Lights Over Atlanta, Michigan, by indie rock band Great Lakes Myth Society. If you do try to catch The Northern Lights tomorrow, I definitely recommend queuing up this song while you gaze up above. I listened to it while watching The Northern Lights in Iceland a few years back, and anytime I'm out under the stars on Lake Michigan, I make sure to play it. It really captures the vibe incredibly well, especially if you are as into MySpace era indie rock as I am. Link in the show notes. All right, well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.